Last week, we began in Psalm 51. And we talked about transitioning from the Psalms of Lament uh, that cry out to God for outward change, change of circumstances, to transitioning into a penitent psalm, which Psalm 51 is. Psalm that seeks inward change. Not the problem is with outside of me, but the problem is inside of me. I'm the one who needs to change. I am grieved over my own sin. And so last week we looked at the problem, the problem of the wickedness in man. We have a judicial problem that our transgressions, we have transgressed or gone over the boundaries that God has set before us and we are guilty before him. We looked at our spiritual problem that our very nature, our iniquities, we were born in iniquity. Our sin nature pervades everything. We also looked at our behavioral problem, that our sin, our actions continually miss the mark. And so we are completely corrupt, and David recognizes that he is completely corrupt. And this psalm is an example for us on how to view our sin, how to view our God, and how to respond in the forgiveness of our God. And so in David recognizing his transgressions, his iniquity, and his sin, it's in response to this famous account of him lusting over Bathsheba, taking her uh, as his bedmate before he takes her as his, his wife, has a son and kills her husband. All of this culminates when Nathan comes to him and tells him that you have sinned against God, you've sinned against uh, the, the entire nation, and you are a man who's deserving of death. David cries out his heart before God, and this psalm is his heart and thoughts recorded. And so what we also looked at last week is that sin rarely thinks about who it affects. Only what it desires in the moment. This is what I want. I don't care about the consequences. But even rarer still, sin and we do not recognize that our sins are ultimately against God. David said, I've sinned against you and you alone. Everyone else may be affected by this, but ultimately I have broken God's laws. I have transgressed against him. So this is the nature of David's psalm, and this is our nature before the Lord. And so this is a great gospel exercise working through this psalm. Uh, there was a post in the, the London Times a while ago. Um, the question, the simple question, and they ask for responses from the readers, says, what is wrong with the world? Now, if we pose that question today, there'd be plenty of finger pointing. This group, that group, this person, that person, they're what's wrong with the world. This over here is what's wrong with the world. Anything else but me. G.K. Chesterton, if you've ever read him, uh, you're usually better for reading G.K. Chesterton. Still he, tar- still he starts talking about uh, the Catholic Church, then, we, then we'll have some questions. But he, he writes in and um, sums it up in very simple words. The question is, what's wrong with the world? This is all he writes in his entry. Dear editor, what's wrong with the world? I am. Faithfully yours, G.K. Chesterton. He got to the heart of the matter. Instead of pointing our fingers everywhere else, and these penitent psalms help us to understand I am what's wrong with the world. The heart of the world's problems is the heart of man. We also looked at this last week. That because of Adam's sin, Adam as our representative, the entire creation is under a curse. And we being in Adam, being his progeny, being attached to him, we are what's wrong with the world. 
And so many of us point outside, they're what's wrong, that's what's going on. But first and foremost, we must understand that our heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. And until our heart is reconciled, there is no hope for us desiring reconciliation in anyone else. So we looked at the problem, the wickedness of man, and we looked at the need, the need for pardon and purity according to the mercy and love of God. And the solution to it all, as we walk through each of these verses last week, is the finished work of Christ. And that through repentance and forgiveness of God, then we have restoration. So last week we looked at the repentance and the forgiveness. This week we're going to look at the restoration and renewal and the praise that accompanies, that accompanies it. So this week we're going to get into the second half of the petitions that focus on a spiritual condition. And then uh, getting into David's response after that. So if you'd open your Bibles, I'm going to read all of Psalm 51. And we're going to focus on verses 10 through 19. Psalm 51. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create a clean heart in me, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from my blood guiltness, O Lord. O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will, de- you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God Our broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing psalm. I feel like when I read this, it's a theological and spiritual roller coaster brings us to the highs and lows of the Christian life. What a great example David is for us. In so many ways, being a man after God's own heart, he loves your word, he sings your your praises. But he also sins mightily. But his heart that is after you is broken over his sin and turns and repents. Let David be an example to us, not just in doctrine and in praise, but in repentance and penitence. Let each one of us be broken over our own sin and cry out to you, a God who is merciful. And rejoice knowing that we have received 
mercy through Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, I pray that your spirit would teach us this morning, convict us, correct us where needed, remind us of everything that Jesus taught us, remind, bring to our remembrance your word and the promises in it. You are faithful. You will never leave us. You will be with us to the end of the age, and you have given us your spirit to be with us forever. We are sealed to you as your people. You are our God. We are your people. We are your sons. We share in the inheritance with Christ because of what he has done for us. And I pray that you be glorified in everything that we say and do. And in these next few moments, when we walk through this, this psalm, that you would renew our hearts. Those who are dead within the sound of my voice, that you would breathe life into them anew for the first time. Those of us who have life but have no joy of our salvation, breathe a right spirit within us that we may respond in joy to what you have done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to continue in this psalm that is a theological gold mine. Um, and what we saw last week is that David knows it's not enough just to be forgiven for past sins. Because he's still sinful. He's going to sin again. The condition must be addressed. This might sound a little shocking to you, but even with forgiveness, something is still missing. Forgiveness is not enough. You can have your sins forgiven and be brought to even with, with God. But a holy God still requires a holy people. A righteous God still requires a righteous people for himself. Every religion on the planet tries to make outward in transformation. If we fix this behavior, if you do these steps, and many Christians... If you do all of these external things, then your heart will be right. Do all this outward stuff first. Scripture and this psalm in particular give us a very different picture. We need inside-out renewal. Because Jesus didn't just forgive our sins. He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He gives us His righteousness. So our account that when, when we're forgiven becomes even. We're now in the black. We're now in the positive because of Christ's righteousness. So not only do we need forgiveness of sins, we need a renewal that gives us a positive standing before God. We need to be imputed with the Spirit of God. So we're going to get into some of that this morning. But David instinctively knows through the Holy Spirit that it's not enough just that I'm forgiven. It's not enough just that I'm pardoned. I need to be made pure. I need something new within me, because as I am is not good enough. And this is where we pick up in verse 10. So in these three petitions here, 10, 11, and 12, there's a pattern that we miss in the English, um, but is very apparent in the Greek. So if you've ever gone through an exegesis study, there's A and B in each verse. So A would be the first line, B would be the second. Sometimes there's a C. So if you look at 10, 11, and 12, I want you to see the, the pattern here. The A line. Created me a clean heart, O God. Cast me not away from your presence. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Those are all three requests to God. 
But the beeline in the Hebrew is, is clear here. They all begin with ruach, spirit. So the way this reads in the Hebrew is spirit, a right one, renew within me. Spirit, your holy one, take not from me. Spirit, a willing one, uphold me with. There's this, this pattern here. God, I need this from you. And the answer each time is a right spirit, your spirit, and, and, a, and a willing spirit. Whenever the, the original language puts these fronting, is, is what they call it, puts the same word up front three times in a row, it's to pay attention. The purpose of this whole thing is spiritual transformation. David is not just seeking behavioral modification. Hey, change this about me or change this about this person. But David is saying it's a spiritual need. I need spiritual inward transformation. And so that's the pattern of these next few verses. All the requests are to God. And all of the assistance for those requests must come from God. They are all spiritual needs. So let's pick up in verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Begins with the verb create. Bara. There's many words for create in, in Hebrew. Genesis 1.1. Bereshit bara Elohim. In the beginning, God created. The same word for creating something out of nothing, to create something new, David invokes here. Bara, create in me. The same way you brought the earth into existence by the sound of your voice. Create something in me that is supernatural that only you can do. You bring dead things to life. You bring things that are nothing into something. That is the type of creation that David is speaking of here. A supernatural creation that only God can do. Create in me a clean heart. We've addressed this many times, but it's important to remember in Hebrew, the heart. Uh, it's not hallmark and you know little little pink hearts and in valentine's day day cards in hebrew the the heart is uh the the inner thoughts and motivations it's the 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 seed of all of our desires our religious affections everything that flows out of the heart defines who we are so he needs a clean heart he needs an inner transformation where all of my inner thoughts and feelings are That's what needs to be changed because my heart is deceitfully wicked above all things and no one can trust it. So because of his sin sin nature, David says, create in me a new nature. I need a new one. I need a clean one because this one is not clean. This is a good prayer. This is what David understands. That I can't put new, I can't put um, new wine of repentance into the old wine skins of iniquity. And so all of Scripture agrees with, with, with itself. And, and, and as Jesus taught us, that you, know, you can't just wash the outside of the cup. The inside must be clean. You can't put new wine in old wineskins. We must be renewed body and soul. We need an inward and outward renewal, but it must begin with a heart that is wicked. And I love here how David states this, create in me a clean heart. You notice what he doesn't do? He doesn't blame his situation. He doesn't blame Bathsheba for looking so good and, 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 and tempting him. He recognizes that the fault is within him. The fault is with his heart. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. And a new right spirit. So, this word renew, 
It's not that he didn't have the Spirit of God before. We're going to look at that in, in, in a moment. It's not that there wasn't a good spirit within him. It has been fractured. It has been weakened. It needs to be renewed. Renew a right spirit within me. He loves the Lord, but he desires to be renewed in a way that he is not right now. He needs to be renewed in the favor of God. Without spiritual renewal, any kind of outward modification is just putting lipstick on a pig. You guys have heard this, this saying. You can dress it up all you want, but it's still ugly. This is not just dressing up something on the outside. A new right spirit. This word in the Hebrew is more like steadfast or, 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 or faithful. I need that renewed in me. This is promised in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, this great new covenant promise that we see through the prophet Ezekiel. I want you to see the motivation here. So you can turn to Ezekiel 36. I didn't put it on the screen because I want you guys to work this morning. So Ezekiel 36, the context here is, as we see throughout the history of Israel, an unfaithful people who are not faithful to God. And God is desiring for them to be renewed so that his name may be proclaimed. I want to read this in context. You may know the verses that directly apply to our passage, but I want you to see the context and why God does what he does. God's motivation in this entire passage. So picking up in verse 22. Ezekiel 36, 22. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. Why does God do anything in his people? For the sake of his name. For his glory. That the great I am, that Yahweh may be praised, that his fame and his renown would go to all of the nations. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. God will do it for his name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. This is amazing. This is what God is doing. This promise, this new covenant promise that is given hundreds of years before Christ, hundreds of, of, of years before him sending the Holy Spirit in his believers, is that I'm going to amaze them by what I do in you. And they're going to glorify me because of what I do in you. We are the recipients of that promise. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. There is a rhythm here of who is doing the work and what needs to be done. Look at the rhythm of these next two verses, 26 and 27. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you, uh, your, you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God is working within his people. David knew this instinctively. I need something new. But God does it for the sake of his name. So that his people may glorify him, giving them a new heart. That old covenant promise. We see fulfilled, and we read this morning in Romans 8. Turn to Romans 8 for me. 
I want to focus on these couple verses because it helps us put David's prayer in its anticipatory state into the fulfillment that we share in Christ. So Romans 8, starting in verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, just so you know, that is a great Trinitarian line. If the Spirit, capital S, of him, Father, who raised Jesus from the dead, Son, of the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who lives in you. We see this fulfilled in Christ. The promises that David looked forward to, that Ezekiel looked forward to, we have assurance of. And this goes right along with what David prays for next. Back in Psalm 51. He knows he, knows he needs a right spirit within him. And what is it that determines that right spirit? One, cast me not away from your presence. And two, take not your spirit from me. Cast me not away from your presence. He deserves punishment. As he told the prophet Nathan, I des- the, the man who did this thing, the man who takes the one sheep, when he has many of his own, he deserves to die. I know I deserve punishment. And the worst possible punishment is to be outside of God's presence. Cast me not away from your presence. This is also language that we're not really familiar with, but in a Jewish context, the presence of God is in the temple. The king has leadership over Jerusalem and the city, Zion, as we're going to look at later, is where God's presence is. And this is attached to his covenant kingship. He's the leader of Israel. So he knows he deserves punishment. And the worst possible punishment would be to be cast out of Jerusalem. And to be away from the presence of God and away from the people of God. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Again, this, this, this language in the Hebrew, and spirit, your Holy One, take not from me. Now, it's important to get context here. Because there's always a question, is, we don't have time to flesh this out fully, but how does the Spirit interact in the Old Testament versus the New? I want to show you in 1 Samuel chapter 16. So the Spirit is active in working in the Old Testament, but in a way that is distinct from the indwelling and the promised Holy Spirit that Jesus gives us. So picking up in 1 Samuel 16, chapter, or verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, this is David, in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. So the Spirit of God, the anointing of the Spirit of God in the Old Testament is attached with, with, with specific tasks. This is attached to kingship. The Spirit of God is with the leader of God's people. When Saul rejects God's leadership, the Spirit is taken from him. When David is anointed as a leader, the Spirit is given to him. And David's seen how God works. My, the Spirit has left me, or excuse me, has left Saul and come to me. So David knows that just like Saul, he is guilty, and that the Spirit 
could leave him in this function. So it's a good prayer for him to say, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. So you got to remember, this is David's context talking about his, his, his kingship. Um, this is not a passage about losing the Holy Spirit or that being taken from you. We'll get to that more in the next verse. But this is a distinct working of the Holy Spirit in the officers of God. But this is different from what Jesus promised. If you remember in our study through John, that Jesus said, it is better that I go. Why is it better that I go? Because I'm sending my spirit. My spirit will be your helper, who will remind you of everything that I taught you. He will, be, he will, he will condole you. He will, he will console you. He will comfort you. He will remind you of everything that I told you, and he will unite you to me forever. He will never leave you. So, what David longs for, to know that his spirit, the Spirit of God will be with him forever, we have promised and fulfilled through Christ. What David asks for, we have promised. The indwelling Holy Spirit that Christ promised to us in John 14 and 16 is a full assurance of our salvation, a full assurance of our preservation, that God himself indwells within us as we saw in, in Romans 8, because of the righteousness of Christ. And this is a good desire. So, as John Calvin puts it, only someone in the Spirit can recognize their need for the Spirit. This is a good desire that I need the Spirit of God within me. I do not want my Spirit, I do not want your Spirit to depart. And when you are afraid of the Spirit of God leaving you, that is a good fear, but a false fear. And we know that the Spirit will never leave us. It's a good desire to have that in us, but I want you to know that through faith in Christ, if indeed, the language of Paul in Romans 8, if indeed the Spirit is within you, the Spirit will never leave you. God will never leave you because He dwells within you, has made His home within you to make you a temple so that you can offer acceptable worship. More on that later. I would be more concerned if you didn't desire God's Spirit, if you didn't worry about your own sin and being separated from God. The good news of the gospel is that what Christ has, has finished, we can't screw up. Amen? Amen? Verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He's not asking for salvation. He knows he belongs to the Lord, but he's asking for joy in it. How many people do you know who have a joyless salvation? How many of you have a joyless salvation? There's no joy because he needs to be restored to right relationship with God. He knows that, that his sin has affected his communion with God. It's taken the joy away from him. And so, I feel like many of you need to hear this. You may be saved, but you have a joyless salvation. Are you holding on to the world? Are you holding on to your sin? Are you critical of yourself or of others? Are you so focused on what is wrong with the world and wrong with you and wrong with everyone else that you have no energy left for the joys that you have in Christ? Are you free in Christ? Yet so you are so slave, enslaved to the next headline or the next Netflix episode that you can't take joy in eternal things. This is a real struggle for us. Because those of us who are in Christ, we know that we are saved. We know that our salvation is secured in Him. How often is it joyless? 
how often do we complain and walk around as if everything is wrong and I've got nothing to be happy about. The world tempts us with, with, with fleeting happiness. This will bring you joy. This will bring you happiness. But the promises of the gospel are eternal life and eternal joy in our Savior. And I want you to be encouraged. This is a good prayer. If you are in Christ, rejoice. If you do not have joy in your salvation, if you don't wake up every morning and say, thank you, God, that you saved a sinner like me, you need to repent and pray for that joy of salvation. There's nothing this world can take from us. There's nothing this world can do to us that changes that. And even David knows that he must be restored to God in full joy and rejoicing, but first he must repent. He must be broken and fall on his face before God. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And how does that restoration happen over time? Because he knows I can be joyful for a moment, but I'm going to be miserable tomorrow. I'm going to sin again. This is his next petition. And uphold me with a willing spirit. Uphold me. He needs to be sustained and given a willing spirit to continue. Not under compulsion, but the same preservation needs perseverance. The same spirit that comes in you to save you until the Savior returns or takes you home also needs to sustain and maintain so that you persevere, so that you finish running the race. Not only do I need regeneration, and preservation, but I also need perseverance. Because I'm weak, and I'm sinful, and I'm going to struggle, but I need that willing spirit. I need your spirit working within me so that I can continue to be joyful and continue to be obedient. What David's talking about here is a complete sanctification. We have much to learn from this man after God's own heart. I think what's amazing about all of these petitions is that everything David asks for Everything David petitions the Lord for, we have in Christ. We have an answer for in the gospel. We see them fulfilled in the person and work of Christ and what he has done for us and given to us. This should be such a great encouragement to us. A new heart, a right spirit, the spirit of God that will, that, that will never leave, that reminds us of the joy of our salvation and sustains us all throughout our days. Everything David asks for, we have in Christ. So then we move on from the section of petitions to the final section of praise. And something that we don't get here in the English again, there's a connection between 12 and 13 that, that I think is, is helpful. There's this reciprocal nature. So the same word that begins verse 12 actually finishes verse 13. So it kind of bookends it. Restore to me the joy of your salvation is actually translated return. So if you look at this here, return to me the joy of your salvation, then I will teach transgressors your ways and the sinners will return to you my returning will lead to the returning of others return to me the joy of salvation so others may return to you you see what david's motivation is here he knows he must be reconciled to god first but it doesn't end with him his desire is the same way i repent the same way i turn i want others to turn as well because lord if you work within me i will declare your ways and others will will turn to you these things feed off one another. The restoration and joy and salvation that we have in Christ should immediately flow out into desiring others to return as well. And that's where we pick up in 13. This section of 13 through 17 
These are marks of saved people. These are David desiring for his restoration to transfer to the people of God so that they return to him. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold with me a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your, your ways. Then he would help others learn from your mistakes. If you have not learned from your sin, if you are not growing in your sin, you can't help anyone else. If you are struggling in quicksand yourself, you can't pull someone else out. You must repent and reconcile yourself to God, and then you can help others. The Christian faith always begins with personal transformation. It always begins with us being reconciled to God. But it is never meant to stay with us. It is meant to be shared with others. It is meant to see that repentance in our life becomes repentance for others. This me, myself, and God Christianity that so many people have is not biblical. I just need to work my stuff out with God. I'm going to sit here in my little corner by myself and everybody else be damned. It's not biblical. Every time in the Psalms, we're going to see one of those later, that there is repentance and there is, and there is renewal, there is restoration. I'm going to tell everybody. I'm going, to, I'm going to sing your praises so everyone knows. I want to teach others. I have something so good, I want everyone else to know about it. If you have a really good pizza, you'll tell everybody on Instagram. When God redeems you from death, are you as excited? Christ died, gave himself for the church so that his bride might be ambassadors, to grow his body, the saints, for the sake of his glory. The repentance in us is to be an example. Our sins become an example to others. Don't look at me because of how good I am, of how much I have together. Look at me because of what my God did for me. Look at me because of how my God restored me. And if he can restore a wretch like me, he can restore you. This is the means by which God designed to grow his people. His spirit works within us to work in, in others. This is why our vision statement is intentional. We begin with teaching truth. If you begin with God's word, understanding who you are, your sin before a holy God, then that the solution is in Christ. If you teach truth and you exalt Christ, then he transforms people, and then our affections are stirred to love the Lord. Only when you are rooted in the truth of who God is and who we are, and Christ is exalted, and our hearts are loving the Lord, then can we lead one another in the Spirit. You can't do that backwards. The Spirit will not enable people who are not transformed. If Christ is not exalted, you, you, the, the Spirit cannot lead you to lead others. But people who are transformed by the finished work of Christ and who love the Lord are able then in the Spirit to pour into others. This is who we are. This is what the Christian life is to be. And David, man after God's own heart, knew this hundreds of years before Jesus walked on the earth. There's so much wisdom in this psalm. But he's not done yet. Because this is David looking toward forgiveness. David is still petitioning God. He's hopeful. He's confident. But as he said a few verses ago, his sin is ever before him. Verse 14. Deliver, from me, uh, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. Blood guiltiness. Both adultery and murder are capital offenses. David deserved to die. It's still in front of him. This is a guilty man knowing that he's about to be judged. 
And instead of like so many of us would do and so many people do, instead of pleading his case, instead of trying to argue his way out of it, he owns it. I did it. I sinned. I am, I am guilty. He appeals to the grace of God. Look what he says here. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. His sin is only against God. He can only be delivered by God. And this is why Christ had to come. Because apart from the grace of God, apart from the work of Christ, there's blood guiltiness on every one of us. Every one of us, like David, is guilty of a death penalty. And so I just have a question here as I was reading this this week and thinking through this. Do we think of God the way David does? Do we pray the way David does? Do we address God, oh God of mercy, oh God of my salvation? Do we pray like that? Do we remind ourselves in our prayers and in our thoughts that this is not just any God. This is the God of my salvation. This is the God who sent his son for me. This is the God who is merciful toward me, a sinner. And there's great value in that. There's great value in reminding ourselves of the characteristics of our God. Because when we know God and who he is, we can pray rightly and we can sit rightly before him. He's the God of my salvation. My salvation is in him. Whom shall I fear? And we would take more joy in our salvation if we prayed like that. O God of my salvation. And now we get to the point where recognizing that his salvation comes from God should always lead to praise. And my tongue shall sing aloud your praise. We saw the same thing in verse 12. Um, That salvation is attached with joy. When you recognize that you are saved, you should be joyful. The the first response of deliverance, you have delivered me, let me praise you. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. We praise God that he is righteous and holy, but yet he is merciful. And for us who are in Christ, we can praise Christ for his righteousness because he's given it to us. Oh God of my salvation, not only have you saved me and forgiven me, but you have given me your righteousness. There is no greater cause for joy than that. We see the same sentiment in verse 15. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. We see this same A and B parallel here. Deliver from me, O blood... uh, Deliver... I don't know why I have such a hard time with this. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O Lord, lift up... Open my lips. O God of my salvation, my tongue will sing aloud your righteousness. Verse 15, and my mouth will declare your praise. God works, we worship both times. Here's what God does, here's how we respond. God, only you can do it, and I will praise you for it. God, thank you for what you've done. You are worthy of my praise. So worship is not just words sung, but it is actions done. David recognizes, he continues with this exposition on worship here. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be pleased with burnt offerings. These are two acts of worship. Sacrifice, the slaughtering of an animal, blood shed for atonement so that relationship with God can be restored. Burnt offerings, the smell of that animal, the smell of God's people desiring to be recognized to him as he says it's a sweet aroma in his nostrils. God does not have nostrils. But these burnt offerings are, are, are pleasing to him. This anthropomorphic language is is, is helpful, putting the the things of God into terms of man so we can understand it. These two types of of, of worship were meant to reconcile God's people to him. 
but he will not take pleasure in it. I will not delight in it. You won't be pleased with it. Why? Because God never intended for just simple external worship, for just simple religious practices. He never intended for empty sacrifice. What does he delight in? What have we seen so far? You delight in truth in the inward places, a new heart and a right spirit, brokenness over sin, people humble before God. David knows that the point is not the sacrifices. It's not the blood. It's not the smoke. It's the heart of the person who is offering these things. I must be transformed inward because if I just do this outward stuff and I don't address the real problem in my own heart, you won't delight in it. You won't take pleasure in it. The inward condition is necessary for the outward act. So then for us, if we just attend church, if we just tithe, if we just serve as some religious obligation, will he be pleased with that? And if we do it with a smile on our face, but we're not joyful inside, we're not doing it out of response of what God has done for us, out of gratitude for what he has done for us, humble because our God is merciful. Will he delight in that? God does not need or want your empty religious acts. I know and I love you guys, and I know this is not most of you, but I think this is, this is good for us to remember. I'm, and, 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 I'm, and I'm glad you're, you're here, but if you're just sitting here and you just come because you think God's going to pat you on the back because you show up on, on a Sunday or you put a couple bucks in, in, a, in a basket or you have it all together on the outside, he doesn't care if you don't love him. If you do not rejoice in a God who is merciful, if you have not been transformed inside, if your faith is not in him, then what's the point? There are plenty of other religions who will promise you a lot more than, 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 than we will. But if you truly are restored, renewed to God, if your spirit is right with him, and you know that through the finished work of Christ you can stand before God, then you would feel like David does in verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Not like, they are a broken spirit. It's not the animals. This word broken, it it means broken. It means to be destroyed. To be broken into pieces and essentially pulverized. My own spirit within me must be broken. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. Jesus told us, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is what he was talking about. Those who know in, in and of themselves they, have, they are of abject poverty. They have nothing to offer within themselves. They are broken over their own sin. That is a sacrifice to God because only when you admit that you have a problem and that you are a sinner and that you are what's wrong with the world can you be restored. But he doesn't stop there. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. We don't have a context for contrite. The word means crushed. And your heart is crushed when you sin. That is a good sign. If you are miserable in sin, praise God. Because if you overlook sin, I'm concerned. This is a good thing. This is acceptable sacrifice to God. Because you could sacrifice a million bulls. It means nothing without a clean heart. There's a couple passages that, that, that look at this. 
Micah 6. Micah kind of talking out, out loud, asked God what he would accept. Micah 6, 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Just think about that. Coming before God on high, what could I possibly bring? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with tens of thousands of rivers of oil? That's a lot of oil. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? If I gave you my child, would that be enough? But as he told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. God requires a humble people, not a people going through a bunch of external religious uh, actions. One more that's even more powerful in Isaiah. Isaiah 66. So the context of Isaiah 66, we get to the end of the book. Isaiah um, 65 is talking about the new heavens and new earth, and God declares, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make all things new. And who are going to be the people who inhabit my new heavens and new earth? Picking up in chapter 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. This is who's speaking. What is the house that you would build for me? Think I'm impressed with what you do? And what is the place of my rest? He's talking about the temple here. All these things my hand has made. So all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one on whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God does not delight in empty religion or beautiful buildings and and, and big shows developed by man. The humble, the contrite who tremble at his word. That is what God desires. And we've talked about this in so many different ways. But trying to do a multitude of good works, to look good before God and to look good before other people, it's like painting a car with no engine. It looks pretty, but it's useless. So many people try to do as pretty themselves up on the inside, but they have never stood before God, broken over their own sin. This is the gospel that saved us, and this is the gospel that we must proclaim. Because as David is telling the the transgressors to turn from their ways, according to the ways of God, these are the ways of God. David is telling his brothers and sisters in Israel, don't just do empty religion. Don't just go through sacrifices and, and burnt offerings. Don't just go through the motions. Make your heart broken before God. Are you broken over your sin? That's what he delights in. That's what our God requires. That is our message as well. And then we kind of close here with this last section. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices. So, Zion equals Jerusalem. uh, The people of God, the place of God where God is is worshipped. But look what he says here. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. God desires good things for his people because he's good. David knows how to play or pray according to God's nature, as should we. Why can we ask God for good things? Because you are good. God, do good to me because you are good. 
God bless your people because you are a giving and abundantly faithful God. And this is what he asks. But why does, why does he pray this? Now why does he pray for the nation? Because as we saw earlier, he is anointed as king of Israel. His, his covenant kingly office has an effect on the entire nation. As we see throughout the history of Israel, when the leaders are, are wicked, the people suffer. The people are like sheep led astray. But when the leaders are faithful and good, God prospers his people and he, go, and he does good to them. So he's asked for this request here. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. There's a lot of debate about this. Because at this point, Jerusalem had walls. Now, technically, the walls weren't completed until the reign of Solomon. So literally, maybe this is the completion of the walls, um, but I think this is more metaphorical. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Walls always in Scripture. They always signify strength and protection. Strengthen your people. Protect them. Metaphorically speaking, build them up. Set them apart from all the other nations. Make them holy unto you. Protect them. Because that will, that will um, make them be able to give acceptable sacrifices. The people of God are meant to be united in repentance and worship, but also to be strengthened and protected by God. When God works in them for his good pleasure, then they will offer acceptable worship. And that's what we get in verse 19. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and the whole of burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered to your altar. The king, the leaders must be right. The king must tell all the people and then the, the people themselves must be strengthened and built up in the Lord. They must be protected. Then can you offer sacrifices. When your heart is right, when the people are right together, then God will be pleased with the sacrifices. Reminds us of the words of Paul in Romans 12. Such a great parallel. Romans 12, where Paul begins the kind of the practical exhortation of the book of Romans. The first 11 chapters, he tells them how God is a merciful God. You are wicked, you are sinful, you deserve to die. But God is rich in mercy. Look at Romans 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. David appeals to the mercy of God. Paul appeals to the mercy of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices. What are these sacrifices that are acceptable? Not just this outward religion. Living sacrifices that are holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is true worship. Bodies that are presented before a merciful God, knowing that you have received mercy. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. By the renewing of your mind, by knowing that you are redeemed by a merciful God, then you can do what is acceptable and perfect before him. We get a similar passage in Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13, as uh, the writer of Hebrews closes out the book, says these words, talking about Christ, Christ being the final sacrifice, Christ being the acceptable sacrifice. He uses these words in 15 and 16. Hebrews 13, 15 and 16. I don't know if it's on the screen or not. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Think about that for a moment. That is acceptable sacrifice. Praise to God. Just like the psalmist ends in praise. The lips of people that acknowledge his name. 
when God is on our lips, when the maker of heaven and earth, when our Lord Jesus Christ comes from our lips and we praise him, that is acceptable sacrifices. That is as acceptable as the bulls and goats that Israel offered. Keep your finger in Hebrews. We're going to look at one more in uh, Hebrews 10. So this goes to show that the bulls and the sacrificial system is not the end. If it's not the end in itself, it's, if that's not the point, then what is? The point is that there would be one final sacrifice. When Christ would come, he would be the final sacrifice. And by sending his, his indwelling spirit, then we can have this spiritual worship that offers spiritual sacrifices. Look at chapter 10, verse 4. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, this is quoting Psalm 40. When Christ came into the world, it is the word of God quoting the word of God. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. He's quoting Psalm 40 here. Uh, I don't want to go to Psalm 40. Yeah, let's go to Psalm 40. So what Psalm 40 says. Direct quote, but look how this is, look how this is connected. Psalm 40, starting in verse 6. The outward means nothing if you do not delight in the Lord, if you do not delight in his law. Psalm 46, verse 6. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written to me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. That is pleasing worship. And what happens when you understand pleasing worship, when you delight in, in his will, you have hidden his law in your heart? Verse 9, I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O God. Someone who understands right sacrifice, someone who understands the word of God hidden in their heart, they have not restrained their lips. I cannot keep silent. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I don't keep it to myself. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. If that's how the psalmist feels, shouldn't we feel the same way? How can we keep that to ourselves? When we know that we are forgiven and we are restored, it should turn into praise. So quickly in conclusion, um, it's not just our sins that are the problem. Our very nature needs to be renewed. We are wicked on our own. and It is only by the final sacrifice, the blood of Christ, and him sending our spirit that we can offer right sacrifices before God. The works of God change the people of God to the praise of God and the glory of God. Amen. I want to close with how David does. Many, and I, and I agree with them, think that Psalm 32 is David's response to being restored. And I'm going to pray this as our prayer of close, and we will respond in praise as David directs us to. You can read along with me if you like. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones washed, wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. 
My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Amen.